The gentleman will suspend. For what reason, Madam Speaker? The gentleman is in breach of form. Cite the rule, Madam Speaker. Why are we hiding from the American people? The gentleman will suspend. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, in Oregon, on KYAQ on the Central Coast, and Queso in Cottage Grove. Lancaster, Pennsylvania's WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR, New Orleans WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, KFOI in Red Bluff and Redding, California, KKRN in Round Mountain, California, and Minneapolis-St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF, and coast-to-coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicholSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, and Detour Talk, blanketing planet Earth five days a week, as usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But Brad and Desi have time off. You have me. I'm Angie Coiro sitting in. I'm a host of In Deep with Angie Coiro, heard on many of these same stations and streams. We need a hero, don't we? We are deeply in need of heroes in the age of Trump. We've seen one. Yay. Congressman Ted Liu has stepped up to the plate again and again. He has done it again. He played the audio obtained by ProPublica that you may have heard by now, or if you're like me, you couldn't bring yourself to listen to it yet. It's the audio of crying babies and toddlers held in detention, separated from their parents, in some cases being mocked by their captors. He made the House of Reps listen to it. Check this out. I am Congressman Ted Lieu from California. If the Statue of Liberty could cry, she would be crying today. As I stand here, there are 2,300 babies and kids who were ripped away from their parents by our government and are in detention facilities across America. America was a country founded by people fleeing persecution. We were a land of immigrants. President Ronald Reagan called us that shining city upon the hill. Unfortunately, Donald Trump and Homeland Security Secretary Nielsen have perverted that grand legacy and have now engaged in a functional equivalent of kidnapping. Imagine being a child when you were young. Your parents were likely the most important people in your, in your life. Imagine being ripped away from your mother or father and not knowing if you're ever going to see them again. And then being placed in a detention facility with strangers. Imagine the horror and fear you will see doing that. And then he turns on the audio. What must that sound like? Then presiding officer Karen Handel starts gaveling him. The gentleman will suspend. 
For what reason, Madam Speaker? The gentleman is in breach of quorum. Cite the rule, Madam Speaker. Rule 17 of the House. Rule 17, that sets out House decorum regulations. There's that no prohibits rule, that says I rule can't 17. This is what protest looks like. The gentleman will suspend. Why are you rules, trying to prevent the American people rule from listening to what it sounds like in the detention facility? Rule 17 of the House prohibits the use these are babies and kids in a detention facility. Why do you not let the American people hear this what they what are This is what representative saying? government sounds the like. will suspend. Okay, so eventually the sergeant at arms is pressed into service and the congressman shuts down the audio. So was he in violation of Rule 17? I almost looked it up and then I thought, who cares? If he wasn't in violation, well, yay him. And if he was, well, yay him. Let's just let history make the call on whether he was forwarding the cause of justice and good government. He made me grateful. I mean, the horrors of seeing children captured and detained in cages, being held down, being drugged, now, by the way, being taken to hospital emergency rooms as suicide risks. It is so relentlessly awful. I am grateful for the journalists and the activists and, at last, some politicians who just keep pushing. Brad and Desi, obviously, are key there. There's ProPublica. They got that audio and have been doing some other marvelous reporting around that. Then there's the Center for Investigative Reporting, the nonprofit behind the Reveal radio show and podcast. Reveal broke the story of the drugging of the children, a breakdown of who's making money on the detentions and other critical elements. Here's an excerpt from one of their stories, the one that covered the alleged drug injections. Quote, parents and the children themselves told attorneys the drugs rendered them unable to walk, afraid of people, and wanting to sleep constantly, according to affidavits filed April 23rd in U.S. District Court in California. One mother said her child fell repeatedly, hitting her head and ended up in a wheelchair. A child described trying to open a window and being hurled against a door by a Shiloh, that's the shelter, supervisor, who then choked her until she fainted. The girl said, quote, the supervisor told me I was going to get a medication injection to calm me down. Two staff grabbed me and the doctor gave me the injection despite my objection and left me there on the bed. Ziva Brandstetter is a senior editor for The Reveal, a Pulitzer finalist. She specializes in coverage of immigration and the workplace. I asked her what else The Reveal team had found and whether what was happening in one shelter, for example, for example, the Shiloh Center, whether that was happening in others. What we reviewed was a, a recent uh, federal court filing that um, had hundreds of pages of documentation regarding the systematic drugging of children at the Shiloh Treatment Center in um, near Houston, near a city called Manville, Texas, um, mm -hmm. where children were being drugged morning, noon, and night with heavy psychotropic drugs, many that are not appropriate for routine use in children. Um, we, the child that Arda Bogato tracked down and interviewed uh, along with his mom uh, stayed at, at Shiloh from November through April and she looked at his pill bottles and his medical records, interviewed him and his mom. Uh, she never gave permission for her son to be um, 
uh, placed on these drugs. Uh, he had no need for them. He had no diagnosed mental illness. He had, you know, was acting like a normal kid in this situation and was labeled a behavior problem. And so what we mm -hmm. found was from the federal court filings, um, which go back, you know, several years. This is not a new problem. The Houston Chronicle, in fact, wrote about this in 2014. Um, <clears throat> you know, this is, uh, appears to be a longstanding systemic practice at Shiloh. One of the balls we see tossed back and forth is this is all Trump's doing. No, Barack Obama was doing this as well. And as you just noted, you know, this is, this is a practice that has been going back several years. Is this, to your knowledge, the first time that it surfaced as a news story? Um, it did surface locally in Houston um, mm -hmm. back in 2014. This is the first time we're aware of that it surfaced nationally. So that's mm -hmm. an important distinction. People, you know, all over the country because of our story and now the reporting of other media organizations that have followed um, are now aware that this practice is going on in at least one shelter. And I think it's important to point out um, that the Office of Refugee Resettlement is not very transparent about the conditions in these facilities. You can't go find a list on their website. You can't look up inspection reports, even though inspections are being done. Um, and so... Uh, you know, we don't know if this is going on in other facilities. The These shelters are supposed to report when they use restraints against children, whether that's a physical mm -hmm. restraint or a chemical restraint. Um, many of these drugs would be considered chemical restraints. And I think a very important question we would like the answer to is whether these companies are reporting the routine use of chemical restraints, and whether the government's just receiving those reports and filing them away, um, or, or whether they're not. But this information is out there. So what is the federal government doing about it? Are there questions about how much rights children in detention have where this kind of thing is taking place? Is it different, for example, from someone who is seized in an immigration case versus a citizen of the U.S.? Um, no, I mean, I think generally the children in um, in these facilities, they, I know for a fact that they're covered by um, state licensing standards and whatever state they're in, held in, they're also covered by federal licensing standards. Um, and so whether they're a citizen or not, um, in fact, they many of them are labeled unaccompanied minors and have a sort of a, you know, a status that um, is a little different from just someone who's in the country illegally because the government recognizes an, a requirement to care for you know, minors and, you know, however, in whatever status they are. Um, mm -hmm. For example, federal law doesn't allow nursing home residents to be drugged with um, chemical restraints without a doctor saying this is necessary um, and without periodic review and reporting of the use of restraints. And these um, standards generally are the same for children in um, state and federal custody. Let's go back to the article that uh, was by Edgar Walters, Ryan Murphy, and Darla Cameron in Reveal, and it was a roundup of what we do know about the Texas-regulated facilities that are holding the kids. There's been some question about, well, not question, there's been some coverage, of course, about who's benefiting from this, that there are companies, for-profit companies, benefiting from this. And again, does that go back beyond the Trump years, the profit motive as well? Yes. Yeah, so, um, again, it's important to note that this um, this system to um, house and supervise, feed and care for um, unaccompanied minors 
has been in place since like 2003 when the former INS uh, agency was sort of um, disbanded and um, the uh, detention of children was um, they wanted to move to a child focused model and not a detention model so they put all of this under uh, the Health and Human Services Department um, and created this Office of Refugee Resettlement. So our data on the payments to these companies goes back to 2003. And since that mm-hmm. time, taxpayers have paid $5 billion for um, wow. these companies, to these companies to um, house these children. Um, in some cases, it's as much as $700 per child per day. Um, so we're talking about a lot of money. There are some nonprofit companies, some for-profit companies. Um, one executive of a company called Southwest Key is paid more than $700,000 per year. Um, the Shiloh facility that we wrote about that has so many problems and has had deaths, um, the, the company has had deaths in its facilities, of deaths of children. Um, it's really, if you look at the pictures, a collection of trailers um, mm. on a big plot of land south of Houston. and yet it took in $26 million um, since 2014. So it's sort of interesting how lucrative this business is um, and also in some shelters how poor the conditions are that these children are being housed under. Um, you know, abandoned sort of old Walmarts, old nursing homes, um, old job care sites, trailers. Um, the child that we interviewed, is the, the hospital was a trailer. And we showed him pictures and he pointed to the hospital and it was a trailer. So... Mm. You know, yeah, there's a lot of money, but I don't know how much of that is actually getting to these kids. In addition to the really egregious large-scale money that's changing hands, there are some tiny things covered in the article, and cumulatively, these are terrible for the kids. Uh, BCFS is one of the facilities, one of the, the chains of facilities that's holding on to the kids. A staff member last April said that there had been a child's family member who agreed to send money for the kid. When the cash arrived, the staff member kept it. The year before, an employee gave children inappropriate magazine pages with naked women. Staff members were found to have failed to supervise the kids closely enough to prevent a case of inappropriate touching. These tiny things, cumulatively, are just about as much of a problem as people profiting out of this kind of pain. True. I mean, our um, our project at the T- Texas Tribune, um, you know, 70% of the money uh, here goes to facilities in Texas, so I think the focus on Texas is appropriate. And um, we found 400 violations among these shelters of state standards of child care, and 100 or a third of those were of the high-risk um, level. Um, so they included things like one child who had a broken wrist was not taken to the hospital for three days. Um, mm. Another child uh, allergic to medication had on an allergy bracelet that said that, was given the medication anyway. One child wandered up on a roof twice uh, unsupervised. Um, children having inappropriate sexual contact with each other because staff wasn't watching. Um, one staff member coming to work drunk. Um, you know, th- there were... Uh, there was an alarming level of problems at some facilities, not all of them. Some of them were quite good. But, you mm-hmm. know, 400 violations of state standards among these shelters in Texas alone in the last three years. I know it's early days to be looking for an impact from some of these stories, but are you seeing or hearing of any impact they're having where things might be changing on the ground in each house or in in, in a larger sense? I know that the Shiloh drugging story especially has taken on a a pretty big national um, focus, and um, apparently the city of Manville, which is uh, Shiloh is the nearest 
uh, is the nearest city to Shiloh has just been besieged with phone calls and people demanding that they fix this problem, although they have no ability to do that. It's, it's not in the city limits, and even if it were, they, they don't regulate um, you know, the care provided to these children. Um, so I think the message is getting out there. I, I think what we would like as journalists is for people to call their uh, congressional representatives and, and ask for transparency. Um, the Health and Human Services Department should be making inspection reports, public um, monitoring reports, saying what oversight they're giving to these facilities. And um, at this point, as journalists, we just have to file these uh, Freedom of Information Act requests and wait weeks, possibly months, to get this information. I think it should be available online, frankly. I really thank you for your time. I can imagine you're incredibly busy right now. And uh, thank you for that. And thank you for the work that you're doing collectively to all of you over there. I appreciate being on. You know, we want to get the word out to people, especially about, you know, the public pressure for transparency is the only thing that's going to open up the records. And then people can see what's going on. And and then I I have a a deep trust that the American people will, will see the facts, will pressure their representatives to fix it. Um, So that's just sort of what we do as journalists is, you know, we just get the truth out there and then hope that um, policymakers do the right thing. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. Ziva Brandstetter. You can find her work at revealnews.org. Interesting point of view in The Washington Post from Catherine Rampel, a columnist there. Headline, the real hoax about the border crisis. It's all a hoax, she says. A great big hoax, not the family separations. The babies alone in cages, the drugged immigrant children, the stolen toddlers too traumatized to speak, the wailing children whom Ann Coulter slanders as child actors. Sadly, she says, these cruelties are all too real. The hoax is the premise that President Trump's administration has invented to rationalize such crimes against humanity. His narrative, America has been, quote unquote, infested with hordes of crime-committing, culture-diluting, job-stealing, tax-shirking, benefits-draining aliens. No part of that description, she says, is remotely true. Yet the Trump administration seems to have successfully shifted the national dialogue away from do we have a border immigration problem to what's the right way to fix our border immigration problem. Bless her, she's questioning the premise. She says, truly, it's bizarre. Unauthorized border crossings have been falling over time. Apprehensions of unauthorized immigrants along the southwest border last fiscal year declined to about 300,000, the lowest level since 1971. Those numbers from U.S. Customs and Border. They've risen, she said, in recent months, though year-to-date they're still below historical levels. That's the hoax. Again, gratitude. Grateful to her for pointing that out. Well, there you go. Hey, big privacy decision by the Supreme Court today. That is Around the Corner on the broadcast. Hi, this is Brad. My thanks to those who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to sign up for a subscription to the broadcast of any amount you like. We rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please grab a subscription at bradblog.com slash donate. Thank you. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Clare. I'm giving Brad and Des a day off. 
All is not lost in the American courts, a Supreme Court ruling just outsides, well, mostly sides, with individual privacy. The question was whether U.S. government slash law enforcement needs a warrant to gather data from cell phone sites, specifically very detailed drill-down data that reveals where you are every few seconds with your smartphone. So at first blush, the 5-4 SCOTUS decision looked like a personal freedom victory, but speaking of drilling down, it turns out there are some weirdnesses in there. That is right up Saru's Farvar's alley. He's the senior tech policy reporter at Ars Technica. He's a specialist in tech and privacy and the author of the new book, Habeas Data, about law, tech, and privacy. Hey, Saruz. Hi, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Uh, you know, before we get into the odd bits of this ruling, let's review what got it up to the Supremes in the first case. What are the bones of the Carpenter case that started this? The reason that this is before the Supreme Court is because the uh, court was asked to answer the question, um, can, does the government need a warrant to obtain 127 days of, as you said, what's called cell site location information uh, in the case of a criminal suspect, a guy by the name of, of Tim Carpenter, uh, also known as Little Tim. Uh, Little Tim was involved in a group of of men who were um, robbing radio shacks and cell phone stores in Michigan and Ohio in 2010 and 2011. And by by just the showing of relevancy to an ongoing investigation, just a a much lesser standard than than a probable cause warrant, um, the government was able to obtain his uh, cell phone records, showing where he had been, showing that, yes, he was at the scenes of the various crimes, uh, but it also showed uh, you know, that he went to church on Sunday and that he visited his grandma's house on other days. And it showed all kinds of other information about him that had nothing to do with uh, the crime that he was accused of committing. Uh, and so um, before the Supreme Court, um, his lawyers uh, from the ACLU argued uh, that this level of invasiveness uh, required a warrant. And in a 5-4 to four decision issued today, uh, the Supreme Court agreed. Is there any surprise in that 5-4 split? Um, not really. I mean, yes and no. It sort of depends on how um, how you look at it. Uh, the um, majority opinion was written by Chief Justice John Roberts, who's a conservative justice, uh, and he was joined by the four liberals. Um, and, uh, you know, just Chief Justice Roberts, um, you know, he is a conservative judge, but he has come down on, on, uh, on the liberal side a few times in recent years. Um, listeners may remember uh, that he wrote the majority opinion in the Obamacare case from a few years ago, uh, among others. Um, and, uh, you know, so the, the court basically found uh, that, you know, cell phones are different here. Cell phones are different than um, what, you know, previous courts had looked at. And they provide a really intimate uh, portrait of somebody's life. And if the government wants to uh, get access to certainly that volume of data, 127 days, uh, they definitely need a warrant to do that. Uh, You know, it's not difficult for the police to obtain a warrant, but this has been, you know, something of a constant struggle um, over the decades, if not centuries, in our country as to, you know, how much, uh, how many hurdles does the government need to clear uh, before it gets, uh, you know, into somebody's, uh, you know, most intimate space. Yeah, in fact, you referenced, I was following you on Twitter today, you know, first the decision came out and then you started going down into reading the actual verbiage involved here and the specifics. One of the things you pointed out is that there's this weird six-day distinction. What's that about? Yeah, it's really interesting. I actually missed this the first time I read through the decision. And, uh, it, you know, the majority um, says that um, 
that they they imposed a a limit of six days uh, below which it seems to suggest, and they don't say this outright, but it seems to suggest that below six days, less than six days, uh, the police can get um, uh, you know this type of cell site location information, you know this location data uh, without a warrant. But certainly beyond six days, uh, it requires a warrant. Um, and the dissenters, uh, the conservative wing of the court, uh, really seized on that, really saying, you know, um, this is a very arbitrary rule and it makes no sense. And they, the government didn't really explain why six days was the magic number as opposed to five or seven or eight or two. Um, and, uh, you know, it might be that, you know, the government initially had asked for seven days. And so they were just kind of going ba based on what the government had asked on before. But. Uh, yeah, you know, it's not really clear. There's a footnote in um, in the majority opinion that that seems to suggest uh, that they're not sure that six days is the right, uh, you know, boundary, but that certainly beyond six days, for sure, uh, that, you know, you need a warrant. So how would this apply to Carpenter's case? I mean, the guy who took this to the Supreme Court in the first place, I mean, how long was he monitored? How much of this six days applies to him? Well, um, you know, what's interesting about the other evidence that was presented in this case is so Tim Carpenter has already been, you know, the, the, his case has already been, been adjudicated. He, uh, you know, he's currently incarcerated and he will uh, he was sentenced to more than a century in prison. He will all, uh, you know, barring uh, something unforeseen, will spend the rest of his life uh, in federal prison. Um, so the outcome of this case doesn't affect him personally, um, but it does affect, you know, law enforcement agencies going forward. I mean, one of the things that I'm going to try to report out in the coming days is to go to different law enforcement agencies, the FBI, uh, various police departments to find out, uh, you know, if they have issued memos to their uh, officers uh, to say, hey, we now have this new decision and here's how that's going to change our actions going forward. And that's something that, that happens typically when there's sort of a new ruling uh, along these lines um, for police. There was a Supreme Court case from just a few years ago uh, called Riley versus California, where the Supreme Court unanimously ruled uh, that the police could not search somebody's cell phone uh, without a warrant when they were being arrested. And, and, because, and as a result of that, uh, you know, police and, you know, federal and, and law enforcement all at all levels of the country uh, had to, you know, adjust their behavior accordingly. We can't get into this next question as deeply as you do in your book. So for people who are intrigued, it's habeas data and it's out now. And you can go in depth on the Katz case, the, Steph, the Smith and Miller case. But for our purposes right now, Sarus, what is this about third party doctrine that came up in the Smith and Miller case that has bearing here and may have bearing going forward in privacy cases? Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, there's this there's this legal phrase, as you mentioned, the third party doctrine that dates back to a couple of cases from the 1970s. And I write about one of them at length uh, in my book, Habeas Data. Uh, these are cases known as Smith versus Maryland. Smith versus Maryland uh, involves a guy who mugged a woman on her doorstep at midnight in Baltimore in the mid 70s. And he managed to not only take her purse, but he decided that it would be a good idea to make harassing phone calls uh, against this woman. And eventually, uh, the police were able to obtain uh, three days worth of call records, what we might now call metadata of, of this guy, uh, Michael Smith. And they were able to show that, yes, he was calling uh, this woman and making you know these awful phone calls. Uh, ultimately, the Supreme Court found um, that you know he had no privacy interest in his call records. That that the government did not need a warrant to obtain um, his call records be, uh, because um, he you know 
had involved a third party, in this case, the, the local phone company, uh, to you know, effectuate uh, those phone calls. So the idea here of the third party doctrine is that when you, you know, transact with, uh, you know, another person or another business, when I call you or you call me, if we're using, you know, Verizon cell phone network to do it, we have given up a privacy interest in the fact that we have called one another because we have involved a third entity, a third party, uh, you know, Verizon uh, to do that. So the government doesn't need under this theory, doesn't need a warrant to obtain those kinds of records. So coming back to Carpenter for a second, um, the court did not overturn this notion, this third-party doctrine. They, they left it alone, um, which is pretty notable. They could have gone, you know, the majority here could have said, uh, we think the third-party doctrine is bad law and we're going to overturn it. Um, but here what they said basically was, uh, you know, the, the, the Supreme Court, I think twice, if I'm not mistaken, Chief Justice Roberts writing for the majority, uh, said that their decision was narrow. Uh, they said that you know this applies to when the government wants to obtain cell site location information and they need a warrant to do it, certainly if it's more than six days. That's basically what they said. So they didn't even touch uh, really the, the whole third-party doctrine question. Um, so that leaves open the door as to other kinds of records, right? So there's lots of, you know, this case specifically dealt with, you know, cell site location information, but we don't know uh, what other kinds of information uh, would conceivably uh, be allowed under the third-party doctrine. One example that comes to mind is, uh, you know, genetic information. A lot of people, myself included, have used, uh, you know, services like 23andMe and other companies to voluntarily give up our genetic information uh, to those companies. Could that information be used uh, by the government without a warrant? It seems to me that under the third-party doctrine, the answer would be yes. Um, so, uh, you know, there's there's uh, as I as I often say, you know, uh, privacy law is a never ending rabbit hole. And, uh, you know, in many ways, this question uh, raises a lot more questions than it answers. Saruz, thank you so much. My pleasure. Saruz Faravar, he writes for Ars Technica. He has a book out now called Habeas Data. I will be interviewing him on the San Francisco Peninsula at Menlo Park. If you want information on that, June 27th, we'd like to have you there. You can look for information at indeepradio.com. You know, while we're on the topic of privacy, I talked to Ken Auletta recently for my own show, In Deep. Now, that hasn't aired yet. And I'm going to bring you a tidbit here ahead of time because it's right on this topic. Now, Ken Auletta has been with The New Yorker as a media critic for a long time. He has quite a few books to his credit. It's this latest one that on the face of it is about advertising, the economics of advertising, the challenges, new roles in advertising. It's called Frenemies. As it turns out, you're probably ahead of me here, you can't talk about advertising anymore without talking about privacy and breach of privacy and regulations around privacy. So Ken Auletta, here's that part of our conversation. When we talk about what people are willing to endure with advertising, and I'm focus for just a moment on online advertising, people don't want to see flashing art. They don't want unexpected music. They certainly don't want film that drops down the page as you, you know, go down the page and try to escape them. <laughs> What's happening in terms of developing advertising that people will put up with? You know, this is this gets into the privacy issue. Um, increasingly. I mean, every time I would interview someone and they would say with absolute certitude, this is what's going to be, it's going to be like in five years. I would just want to put my pad down and sneak out because <laughs> I, 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 I thought they were fools. I mean, you can't be certain about what's going to work in this world. 
part of the problem they have, and, and the hands that were raised earlier illustrate that, they know that people, particularly on a cell phone, which is the dominant platform or vehicle for information today, they don't want to be interrupted by advertising. It's a very personal thing. You don't lend it to anyone. It's as personal as your wallet or your purse. And, and the thought that, that you were going to buzz me with a 30-second ad or something that's going to eat up the battery of, of my, you know, or a pre-roll or a banner ad or, or whatever, I, I just don't want that. And, and they know that. So the advertising community knows that. So what do they do? They, they start throwing things against the wall to see what sticks. And that's the right thing to do. And among the things they say is that if we, if we can take the data, particularly when we get Facebook and Google's data, and now increasingly they're saying if we can get Amazon's data, which is the best data, because Google, if you think about it, Google has data about what you search for, what you're interested in. Facebook has data about what you and your friends are, are talking about. Amazon has data about what you actually purchased. Mm -hmm. And that's the holy grail for, for the advertising community. And so you, you, they say, if we could personalize the ads so it's not perceived as a sales pitch, it's perceived as a service. What do I mean by that? Ken, you're walking down the street, and we know you're two blocks from Barney's. And we know that two months ago you bought a sport jacket at Barney's. If you'd like to go into Barney's, just two blocks away, we'll give you 20% off. Now, is that, is that something that I would see as a, as a service to me and personalized? And it might be, and that might help advertising. On the other hand, might I see it as an intrusion? How the hell do you know so much about me? You know, who gave you permission to know all this? about? And they know a lot about us. And so that's one of the fundamental questions. Uh, they, then they say, uh, if you think about it as a seesaw, the more you can target ads based on data you have, privacy protection goes down. As you increase privacy protection, the ability to target goes down. That's the world they're looking at. The, if you gave a truth serum to Mark Zuckerberg, and by the way, this was true when, when he started Facebook, they don't place a premium on, a, on privacy. They, they, they think that the, the engineer, the more they can massage the data, the more they can know, the more they can unlock the secrets of why people do things, why they purchase something, why they watch an ad and like it, and why they're motivated after watching that ad to do something about it. And that's, that's how an engineer thinks. And by the way, it's not unnoble in many ways. I mean, they're trying to create more efficiency and, and give you things you want, et cetera, et cetera. But increasingly, it's come to the point where they know so much and they have so much data that, that it's really kind of scary. Let, and, let me parse through that just a little bit because one of the objections that we hear when it's posited that way is that this is collected information on millions of people. No one really cares personally about you can now let it accept as someone who may buy this frying pan, but they're not doing anything that intrudes into, you know, the guts of your life, the spiritual side of your life, the who you are. All they want to do is sell you stuff and they don't really care about the more personal things that when you think of privacy, you might be worried about. What do you think about that? I don't know. That's true. Um, 
I mean, I'm in my hotel in San Francisco, and I'm doing a phone interview with a reporter. And I, I say, well, Alexa. And suddenly I hear, Alexa talks. I didn't even know Alexa was in my hotel room. Right? And what is Alexa doing there? I mean, it heard me, right? I mean, it kind of freaks you out. Yeah. I mean, and so you, you, you get... You know, you have those questions. When you look at the data, and I have some chapters in the book that talk about the amount of information they have and how they can massage it, they really know an awful lot, I mean, about what you purchase. Mm -hmm. And and increasingly, they think they're able to tell from watching the ad uh, whether the ad had an impact on your ability to purchase or not. So yes, they don't know your name in most cases, right? They know your IPO address. They know... They know your address, really, because they have your IPO. And they just know a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and we don't... Google and Facebook are called wall gardens. Of course, they don't share the data they have. One of the things we've learned is that they have more data and have less control over data, certainly Facebook. We've it's come out since November um, than we expected. Mm-hmm. So I worry about it. Now, I don't want to be an alarmist, um, but but I think there there are legitimate reasons to be concerned about it. And one of the challenges they have is they are international corporations, and as has been in the news everywhere, they are now having to conform to privacy issues, privacy demands from overseas that don't apply here. It, it's a huge issue in in Europe. The twenty eight nations of Europe basically uh, the legislation says that you. You have to opt in if you want to get access to my cookies, to my data, uh, if you're a citizen in Europe. Now, admittedly, in Western Europe, there's much more concern about privacy than there is in the United States. So it's, it's a continuation of a concern that's been there for a long time. But that means that they can't collect your cookies, your data, unless the person volunteers. In here in the U.S., you have to opt out. Any of you ever tried topped out? Yes. It's really pretty hard. I mean, it's like dealing with Social Security Administration or, or the IRS or something. It's really hard to do. And so the entire advertising community, I'm talking about the publishers, the clients, the ad agencies, they violently oppose or vociferously oppose the idea of, of, of you know, of the opt-in. Mm-hmm. And they're united in that. Now, what happens here, and you asked the second question, which is, how do you have a worldwide organization that has one policy for Facebook in the U.S. and another in, in Western Europe? It's very hard to do that. Mm-hmm. There's equal pushback with the idea of ad blockers. I didn't know how vociferous that fight had gotten until I, I followed it in the book. There were lawsuits that were signed onto by major, uh, major media, newspapers, websites, news websites. They literally wanted to make ad blockers illegal, have them declared illegal. I didn't know it got that down and dirty. It, it got really down and dirty. And one of the things that, that uh, animates, particularly Randy Rothenberg, who, who's head of the Internet Advertising Bureau, which represents a lot of the digital companies, he um, he is a, he's accused them of being thugs, because what they do, what AdBlocker Plus does, which is the most prominent one, 
they basically say that if you don't want an ad blocker on your cell phone, you, the New York Times, you, BuzzFeed, whatever, whoever you are, if you pay us, if you, an extorted fee, we will not put an ad block. We'll let your ads go through. And he, on, on a state I have a scene in there where he literally just erupts. He, they wanted him to shake the hand of the head of Adblocker Plus, and he refused to do it. He says, I, this, this man's a criminal in my mind. He's stealing. And I, I, ran, I remember when I, when I was doing my Google book, and, and I'm, I'm, I had access, I, I was a fly on the wall for several years there, and I, I would have pretty good access. And so they were trying to show me how you, they would digitize all the world's books. And so I had, we blocked out an afternoon, and they said, this is what we're doing, and isn't it wonderful? We can, you know, no book will go out of print. Everything will be there. You can have it at your fingertips. And it really is kind of exciting to do that. Let me show you how it works. So they put on the screen a copy of one of my books. And they say, look at this, Ken. All the chapters are here. You can print out chapter 9, chapter 10. You can read the whole book online. You can access, you can search for it if you're looking for a piece of information. Isn't that wonderful? And I, of course, played cool. I didn't express any opinions. I just, I just, but as soon as the meeting was over, I called my publisher. I said, what the hell is going on? <laughs> They're stealing my book. I, I'm in the business of, that's how I make my living. Right. What, what Google believed, and, and this is where the clash of, of views, they believed fair use allowed them to do that. They didn't feel they were violating my copyright. They thought fair use was anyone could share anything they want. Fair use is why you can do search and you get access to anything you search. And they, the, the Authors Guild sued them. I, I wasn't involved in that. But they sued them and it's the first time that Google, I think it was in 2007, agreed to pay compensation, agreed there was such a thing as copyright and we will compensate. And I think they paid $315 million uh, to authors for doing it. And now they're on guard. Same thing, by the way, at YouTube. YouTube used to take anything, and, and now they have restrictions to try and protect the copyright. So companies out here have grown and have recognized that there are certain things that are really antithetical to, to you know, a, a civilized and functioning democracy. And, and they do it. But on the other hand, privacy is not among them. And the question then becomes whether the shame that Mark Zuckerberg should have felt when he went before the Congress and gave his lame answers, I'll, I'll get back to you. He doesn't get back, need to get back to anyone on anything. He knows all the answers. But, but these dumb members of Congress are asking really stupid questions. So, the, but he is embarrassed. He, he's not just a a robot. He's not just a machine. He's a guy with two kids and a, and a wife, and he's philanthropic, and he's humiliated by the attacks on him. So will that have an, an impact on changing his behavior? Um, and if that doesn't, then government intervention might have an impact. So I think, I think the, the, the government is, is the 800-pound gorilla here, and they're going to look closely at at a range of things that to rein in on the, certainly on the privacy issue, but also on the monopoly issue. The the question of can you as as a company, if if you have an eighty percent market share of search as Google 
does, or you own four of the eight social networks as Facebook does, should you be allowed to buy potential competitors? The government could stop that. Should you, should you be treated, a, should we regulate what you, information you can collect privacy? Should we go the nuclear option, which is try to break you up as they tried to do with Microsoft? I covered that trial in 2000. And, um, and they failed uh, to do that. And they should have failed. It was a stupid idea to break up Microsoft. The internet was going to break them up, and it did. Mm -hmm. And But look at the shame Microsoft felt and how tentative they became, just as could potentially happen here with the Facebooks and the Googles. Microsoft went through this really terrible period of, of not coming up with products, of, of engine, not being able to recruit engineers, of being humiliated and embarrassed. And now suddenly they're roaring back. And, but they needed that period of time. And that's the danger that, that a Facebook and maybe a Google face. Ken Auletta, his book is Frenemies, the Epic Disruption of the Ad Business and Everything Else. My full interview with him will air in July on many of these same stations. Have you been following the Theranos case? Whew. Talk about an object lesson in the damage wrought on consumers when corporations and the vast money behind them goes completely haywire. That is next on the broadcast. The broadcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. It's a broadcast. I'm Angie Cuero. Let me recommend a book to you. I promise you will be grateful. Everyone I've told to read this book has been grateful. John Carreyrou's book, Bad Blood, will drop your jaw to the basement. We already know money comes first in corporations. That is their charter, to make a profit. We know that sociopaths do very well in the marketplace, in high-end management. That's established pretty well, too. And we know that the fear of losing a customer to a competitor is a major, if not the major, motivator in business. And all of that came together in the rise and fall of Theranos. Elizabeth Holmes, you might have seen her, kind of iconic. She has the pale skin, the huge blue eyes, the blonde hair, always dressed like Steve Jobs in all black. And she was pictured in a famous, famous shot holding a teeny tiny vial of blood. John Carreyrou got a tip that not all at Theranos was as it was promised to be, and there might in fact be outright fraud going on. So he started to dig to find out the truth. He ended up tangling with thugs and spies and lawyers. It is an absolutely stunning tale. You've got to read it. So here's a part of a conversation I had with him. That's where we get into another element of, of not just tech culture, although it's very big in the Valley, but business culture as a whole is the fear of missing out. Walgreens had every reason to say, where's the science? Right. You know, let me see real records. Safeway, likewise. And the fear was that if they didn't jump into this big coming thing, the competitors would do it. Right. You know, in, in large part, Walgreens was the, the linchpin that, that allowed this to go from an R&D project to, to actually a service that was offered commercially to the public. Um, I think 
a lot of the, the investors and the public and the regulators thought, well, if Walgreens is doing this partnership with Theranos and rolling out these Theranos tests in its stores, then surely it's kicked the tires and it's done its due diligence and it's vetted this technology, right? They're this, you know, reputable uh, drugstore chain based in Chicago that's been around for more than 100 years. Um, I got to think that they've done their homework. And as I explained in, in the book, actually, Walgreens did not do its homework. Um, it's one of the most surreal uh, moments in the Theranos story. Uh, Walgreens in, in early 2010 hires a uh, lab consultant named Kevin Hunter to uh, kick the tires and, and to vet the technology and then uh, doesn't really allow him to do his job, uh, in part because Elizabeth and Sonny uh, quickly grow wary of him and uh, convince Walgreens to exclude him from meetings and from these weekly video conference calls between the companies. And, and uh, you know, he definitely smelled a rat and, and raised questions and tried to alert Walgreens executives. But he was overruled and he was marginalized. And, uh, and it was in large part because Walgreens was terrified that if it didn't do what Theranos wanted it to do, that Theranos would walk away and then sign a partnership with CVS, the rival based in Rhode Island. And, you know, sort of that was like the obsessive way that Walgreens looked at the world is, you know, we're competing with CVS. And if we don't do this, they're going to do this. Let's talk about some of the more nefarious stuff that was happening when you were trying to bring the story to the fore and the people that you were talking to. You saw evidence that people were being followed. Uh, people were getting phone calls that were frightening or at the very least harassing. What struck me about some of this was there was just deniability. There was plausible deniability in a lot of it. There was a reporter who tried to talk to people who were getting the pinprick test and Eventually, and she kept being warned away by the Theranos people. She's in a store doing this, and she's been warned away, warned away, and somebody ultimately pulls the fire alarm. Right. And she can't get her story. Maybe it just happened. Yeah. Maybe what happened to you just happened. And she started poking around, I think, even several months before I started uh, digging into the story. And I think I actually had finished the manuscript and learned about her account one day when I saw her tweets about it. She, I think she was interested in doing a story on Theros, not necessarily an, an investigative one. And she, uh, as for the reporting, went to the Walgreens in Palo Alto and started taking to, talking to patients and uh, learned from these patients that some of them were getting regular venous draws and therefore not, you know, the... the uh, much touted Theranos finger stick technology. And so she kept wanting to ask them more questions and know more about it and find out more about it. And as this went on, suddenly the alarm went off in the Walgreens store and everyone had to evacuate. How convenient. Um, <laughs> and, you know, she doesn't have proof that someone from Theranos did it, but um, she suspects that, that they may have gone to those lengths to uh, make her go away. I wouldn't, you know, given what what I encountered later and what uh, some of my sources encountered, I wouldn't be surprised at all if that's what happened. Let's talk about Tyler Schultz, because you know, the grandson of George Schultz, who starts at Theranos, pretty quickly realizes that he's not happy with what he's seeing, that there's deception going on. It's the sheer insanity of George Schultz talking to his grandson while there are lawyers for Theranos basically hiding upstairs waiting for their cue to yeah. come down. He's asking his grandson to sign a piece of paper 
that says, I'm not talking to reporters. I indemnify Theranos and all that. It's his grandson, and he's advocating for the company. Later on, Elizabeth Holmes is invited to his 95th birthday. His own grandson is not. That's just the peak of craziness. No, I mean, he he sided with uh, Elizabeth Holmes over his grandson. Um, And uh, if you meet Tyler, uh, you would see that, you know, he's a a very smart young man and and, uh, has a great moral compass, really full of integrity. And um, it's incomprehensible for a grandfather to not... Uh, inherently trust, you know, their own blood, which is what happened. Uh, the, I would say that that moment, which I didn't, I didn't learn about that scene. The well, I call it the ambush at George Schultz's house in the May, late May of 2015. I didn't learn about what had happened until about a year later. Um, all I knew at that time is suddenly Tyler went dark, and I couldn't reach him anymore. He had been communicating with me over a, a burner phone. Um, and uh, suddenly the burner phone, you know, uh, rang or it didn't even ring, really. It, it seemed to be out of commission. Um, th- he had this uh, made up uh, name for a, a, uh, an email address to communicate with me. He was no longer answering email. And I even called his mother at one point and left a message with her. Never heard back from him. So I, I suspected that uh, Theranos had figured out he was a source and, and was putting the screws to him. Um, but I only learned a year later uh, what had actually transpired, and it was unbelievable. Um, he had called his grandfather after his grandfather had told his parents that Theranos had figured out he was talking to a reporter at the Wall Street Journal. He had called his grandfather and said, can, can I come over tonight and, and um, talk to you without lawyers? And then he went there, and uh, pretty soon uh, George Schultz says to him, um, I've got, you know, there are two lawyers for Theranos upstairs. Can they come down? Um, And uh, and the lawyers proceed to come down. And this one lawyer, Mike Brill, is like an attack dog and and, uh, makes a beeline for Tyler and and starts, you know, hounding him, uh, trying to get him to admit that he's been talking to me and uh, trying to also get him to name who my other sources are. So Tyler withstands that onslaught that evening. And then uh, there's another surreal scene the next morning, uh, also involving the same lawyer. And finally, he lawyers up. And over the ensuing months, you know, for for three, four months, um, there are discussions between the lawyers and and this guy, Mike Brill, uh, lets it be known that that if Theranos doesn't sign the documents, that if Tyler doesn't sign the documents that Theranos wants him to sign, that uh, Theranos and Boyce Schiller are going to make sure to bankrupt his entire family. I mean, this, this is the, the, the level of thuggery that uh, we're talking about and that Tyler Schultz had to deal with. And amazingly, he never caved. He never signed anything. And in large part, thanks to him, I was able to go to press with my investigation in October of 2015. Another big shocker in the book is that Rupert Murdoch was one of the good guys here. <laughs> that happen? <laughs> that's, I mean, that's another crazy twist in, in this story. <laughs> um, so I, I pieced this together later. I had no idea he was an investor when I first started looking into to, uh, Theranos. And I only started hearing very vague rumors that he might be an investor a couple days before my first story was published. Wasn't able to confirm them at all, kind of put it aside. Um, it turned out that uh, a couple of weeks after I started digging into Theranos, uh, he had been um, 
you know, sort of courted by Elizabeth as an investor, and, and he had invested $125 million in Theranos um, in its last round of funding in, in March 2015, and, and that made him effectively the, the single largest shareholder in the company. Um, and so as I'm uh, gathering string for my investigation, going to Arizona to talk to patients and doctors who received questionable results. Then I go to, I come here to Silicon Valley and I, I meet with Tyler and I meet with Erica Chung, another source, and I'm building this, this expose. Um, and eventually, by by June, the company starts, you know, waging this this very aggressive counterattack. All through that time, I have no idea. That, that Rupert Murdoch is an investor. And of course, Elizabeth Holmes knows that he's an investor and meets with him several times and tries to get him to quash the story. Um, and uh, the, the last meeting before publication of the story between them takes place in late September of 2015, so two weeks before we go to press with the story. And she meets with him in his office in the News Corp building in Midtown Manhattan on the eighth floor. And I'm, in, I'm on the fifth floor. Um, <laughs> No idea that she's in, you know, that she's on the premises, that she's there. Um, and obviously, looking back, it's it's uh, stunning to to think that um, you know she was that close to to quashing the story and that she was right up there. Um, but in the end, he did the right thing. You know, he didn't he didn't interfere. He let the the journal's uh, editors handle it, and and we published the story, and the the rest is history. Let's talk about some of the consequences. From an audience member, have any Theranos directors been sued? And if not, why not? No, they have not. I think this was David Boyes who did this, and, and he was pretty savvy and quickly moving within days of my first story to um, reshuffle the board and to move all those aging ex-statesmen and, and maybe not Mattis, I think, stayed on the board but moved them to a, a ceremonial body uh, called, I think, a board of counselors. And even as he announced this, he sort of leaked it to the New York Times. Uh, he explained that they had never really been a real board of directors, um, that you know the board of directors was him and Madison and maybe another guy, and, and that they were now finally formalizing this. And so they, um, th they ceased being fiduciaries uh, you know, within days of my first story. And in their defense, um, I found nothing in my reporting to suggest that they had no that they had any idea um, that uh, the company was built on lies. That that most of the tests were done on conventional machines that had been modified. Um, one of the things I explain in, in the epilogue is this board had no power. She had managed to control not just to keep not just half of the equity, but more than 99% of the voting rights. And so the, the board couldn't even reach a quorum if she wasn't there in the room. Um, this, it was a completely powerless board. Not, not that they ever showed any sign of you know, questioning her or uh, trying to get to the bottom of anything, but ha had they done so, um, they just would not have had the power to do anything. That's investigative journalist John Carreyrou, recorded for Indeep with Angie Coiro. And that is a wrap on today's broadcast. Brad and Desi are back for the next go-around. Thank God. You can't stomach the news for more than 48 hours at a shot these days. For them and to you, good luck, world. Good luck, world.